it just shows like young, old, like you can make the time for it and you can prioritize it if you really want to. I've always been into cycling. It started probably in my pre-teens. Um, my dad actually got me into to riding. Um, so he was a cyclist his whole life, like more like uh, long distance, like randonneur style events. Um, so I started cycling with him when I was probably about 13 years old. It was like a father-daughter bonding experience. So we would go on lots of road rides together and we joined a club where we'd do anywhere like from 100 to like 300 plus kilometers events. I, I do want to encourage women to get out there and let them know that, yeah, like it's really not as scary as the news tell you it is or as your parents tell you it is or your friends who haven't traveled. Like if you talk to other women, I think they often report the same experiences that I have. But for the most part, like 99% of this world is good and they're there to help you. That's Tara Weir. And this is the Bike Pack Canada podcast. Hello again, friends. Welcome back to the Bike Pack Canada podcast. I'm your host, Steve O'Shaughnessy. So what you think of that music? You digging it? Uh, I really wanted to kind of make this podcast like all produced kind of in-house. So if any of you kind of follow me on Instagram or Facebook, you might have noticed that I uh, set up my studio. I set up my uh, TD4KX electronic drum kit. I have a rack with an electric guitar and a bass and an acoustic Actually, the electric drum kit or the electronic drum kit is pretty amazing because you can just change instruments on it all over the place. So I basically have an entire orchestra worth of instruments in my studio. So I thought I'd put that together. I hope you like it. Um, the other one was kind of an electronically produced royalty-free track that I found that I caught, thought kind of had some good vibe to it. And I put it in there and, and yeah, I liked it. Uh, let me know what you think. I kind of dig it. Something that's kind of come up on my mind as of late is I really want to get our ratings up on Apple iTunes for this podcast. The higher the ratings and the more people that rate the podcast, the more exposure we have and the more growth we'll have. And I think it's super important. So I'm going to throw this out there and see what everybody thinks. Uh, Right now we have uh, 27 ratings. Uh, I think most of them are five star. So uh, a lot of them came in um, when uh, Ryan Corey was doing the podcast. So I I can't take credit for all of them, but uh, some of them are uh, as of late. And I want to thank everyone who took the time to go and uh, put a review and a five-star rating in. I want to thank you very much. Uh, I want to get our ratings up to 100. And if that happens, I'm going to get some rendition of the Bike Pack Canada logo tattooed on my left calf. (laughs) What do you guys think about that? It's kind of win-win because I really want to get a new tattoo. And it's a win for Bike Pack Canada for growth. And uh, I don't know, maybe I'll... I'll, uh, I'll put it on Instagram TV or something. You can watch me get tattooed. I don't know, whatever. Maybe it's too vain. I have no idea. I want to get a tattoo, but I also want to get a hundred, a uh, hundred five-star ratings uh, or a hundred ratings on the uh, podcast. So head on over to iTunes or Apple podcasts. Uh, give us a five-star rating, throw a review, a review in there if you feel up to it. And uh, let's keep this thing going and growing. So next week is Global Fat Bike Day. So those of you who have fat bikes, and I hope that's a lot of you, we had this discussion a couple of weeks ago about getting a fat bike and everybody needs to get one. You need to add that to your quiver. And I think a great place to uh, 
to get a fat bike would be a rebound cycle. Um, like a great selection of bikes there. And, uh, I've said it before in the podcast, great customer service. Every time I've been in there, um, super good vibe. Uh, everyone's always eager to help and, uh, yeah, just an awesome place to go. So head over there. Uh, they've got bikes by uh, Salsa. I think I'm, I'm kind of eyeing up a Salsa Mukluk. Um, and I'm going to get it from rebound, from rebound cycle. So, um, yeah, if you don't have a fat bike, head over there and get one and then you'll be ready for global fat bike day, which is next week. Um, I know in Invermere there, we've got some stuff going on on the sixth. There's a, um, at 6 PM up at the gray wolf golf course up at Panorama, there's going to be a group ride followed by a dinner, bring your own drinks. And then on the 7th at 12 noon up at the Lake Lillian trails, there's going to be a group ride up there followed by the always popular, uh, Derby. I'm not sure if any of you have participated in a Derby. Super fun. My first exposure was in uh, 2014 in Anchorage, Alaska at the world single speed championships. And the winner of those championships was determined by the Derby. So what happens is all the riders, uh, form a circle a pretty big circle. And then, uh, the riders who are going to participate in the Derby enter the circle or the octagon and just start riding in circles. And then the idea is the circle gets smaller and smaller and the riders inside are tested, uh, (laughs) by balance. There's jostling permitted. So you're allowed to use, um, knees, elbows, shoulders. You cannot take your feet or your hands off the bike. And uh, basically the last person standing wins. It's super fun. And every year there's an awesome trophy. So those of you who, uh, who haven't participated in a global fat bike day in Invermere, I'd highly encourage it. Super fun. And then, uh, on the Sunday, the eighth, uh, I don't know what time it is. I think it's at uh, 12 noon. I'll have to check and verify that, but, uh, there'll be a, a group ride at Nipica mountain resort. And anyone who rides a fat bike and who has not been to Nipica, you're missing out. The trails up there are fantastic. Um, like 36 inch wide groomers. Um, there's some snowshoe pack trail up there. The views are incredible and, uh, it's not to be missed. Uh, I spread the love about Nipica mountain resort often, and it's a great place to ride. And that's where they have their annual, uh, cross river ripper, uh, fat bike race coming up, I guess in a month or so. I don't know. Um, I'll have to check into that as well. But uh, yeah, Global Fat Bike Day is pretty awesome here in the East Coots. So uh, if you're nearby, um, stop by. You can check out uh, at Jordy Kirk's uh, Instagram handle and he'll have some details following that uh, if you search for at Jordy Kirk. Or uh, I think if you search for Crazy Souls, uh, it'll come up as well. That's uh, the running store in town that he and his wife uh, or his wife operates. So yeah, Global Fat Bike Day coming at you. Can't wait for that. On today's episode, I bring you Tara Weir. At the beginning of November, Tara completed the Wild West route. And if you don't know about this route, uh, I did a podcast uh, with Clee Roy and Kurt Refsnyder, number 51. You can go back and uh, maybe listen to that one first. It, it was an awesome podcast. Uh, Clee Roy was one of the scouts uh, that one of the first people to finish the wild west route and kurt refsnyder is a uh, bike packing mountain biking advocate uh, who advocates for the use of public lands um, in the u.s Um, the work that he and bike packing routes have done to progress bike packing 
uh, is pretty incredible and uh, can't be understated. So I would suggest you go back to episode 51, uh, listen to that conversation either before or after. Uh, either way, um, uh, it's great to kind of get some context uh, into uh, the route itself and, and uh, the journey that Tara had. And I'll just read you a little bit from episode 51's description. The 2,700-mile Wild West route is designed to offer bikepackers a non-technical, expeditionary-scale riding experience that immerses one in the vast expanses of wild and public lands in the Intermountain West. Nearly 70% of the route is on public lands, 18 national forests, 6 national parks and monuments, and 4 areas with Bureau of Land Management National Conservative Lands designation. Riders will experience the incredible remote mountains of western Montana, and central Idaho, the desolate beauty of southern Idaho's Snake River Plain, endless vistas from Utah's high plateaus at 10,000 feet elevation, the canyon country Navajo Nation and Grand Canyon region, and the towering sky islands and low Sonoran desert of southern Arizona. Pretty amazing sounding route, to be honest. Any, anyone who listens to this podcast can be so jazzed to go and try this route. Definitely a, an awesome alternative and sister route to the Great Divide mountain bike route. And, uh, yeah, I think, uh, I think you're really going to enjoy this one. Um, Tara, I think took, um, something like 11 weeks to complete that. Uh, it's a very, very challenging route. And, uh, she headed out there solo, very experienced bike packer, uh, an outdoors woman. She's a, an awesome person, super grounded down to earth, uh, lady. And I really enjoyed my conversation with her. So now I bring you Tara Weir. Hey, hey Tara, how's it going? Good. How are you doing? Really good. Good. So let me just take a minute here to get levels going and stuff. Cool. You want me to just keep chatting just to sure. test it out, test it out? How's your day so far? Good. So where are you Where are you right now? Uh, I'm in Toronto, so I'm at an Airbnb. Okay. Um, yeah, I've been roaming around quite a bit for the last couple of weeks since I got home. So I had to move out of my place in Dawson Creek. And then my boyfriend and I were going down to Argentina soon, but then we're oh. visiting my family here. So like lots of running around. Right. So it's always yeah, busy coming back. Out. Nice. Yeah. 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 So um, yeah, I'm just going to be checking out of this Airbnb after this interview. So yeah, just lots of roaming around, um, visiting people. It's been kind of crazy since I got back. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Is it, yeah. is it, is it hard coming back? Has it been hard? Like, you know, mentally? Um, it's actually tougher than I thought it would be because I've, I've done a lot of these trips before. Um, so I don't have the culture shock like I have, I've had with previous trips where I'm, you know, coming back from say Mongolia or Central Asia where it's just like, whoa, Western, Western culture, what's going on. Um, but yeah, just like the pace of life is very different. So, um, just coming back and, um, not being on my own, like not making all my decisions a hundred percent on my own, like having to <laughs> You know, even with my partner, it's just kind of funny having to like discuss things. And I, really, <laughs> I was acting like kind of selfish in a way because like when you're so used to being solo, making all the decisions 100% by yourself and suddenly you're around people, it's just a very different kind of dynamic. So I, I kind of forgot what that was like to transition back to that. Um, and yeah, just a different pace of life. Like just, you know, having that routine of getting up, going on the bike, eating, sleeping, it's so simple. And then suddenly... You know, you're visiting people and then you're talking to people who are living a very different lives than what you were. So just it's sometimes hard to relate to the conversations at first and you feel kind of, yeah, a bit like a fish out of water. So that's that always takes a bit of time for me. And I kind of forgot how long it takes at times. So, 
yeah, definitely a bit out of it for the first week. I've yeah. been back, I have to say. My wife is really well traveled and she's commented exactly the same thing before. Like coming yeah. she was in in Asia for probably like 18 months. What okay. and, like back in her 20s. <clears throat> and uh she said coming back was a trip because when you're when you're so immersed in a different culture and it's the pace is different and the things we take for granted aren't there because you know when you're living in the jungle and you're you're, huh. you're you're teaching you know you're in a village and then you come back to north america and it's just bananas she says it's crazy oops yeah um, so yeah. Uh, like where she's been before like um oh where i don't know yeah. man she's been all over the place yeah she's pretty she's pretty yeah. well traveled sounds like a bit like you as well pretty well traveled yeah, yeah, I've been traveling, I guess, since I was 24. Like, my first trip was just backpacking. Then I got into cycle trade at 25. And, yeah, I've just been doing it pretty much as much as I can ever since. Like, I've kind of, like, designed my life and my work so that I have time to do these things. Like, um, I only work about half the year so that I can fit this in. And I do, I've been doing seasonal forestry work since I was 19 and I'm 33 now. So I just kind of got sucked into that lifestyle and it's hard to let it go when you have all this free time. I would say sucked in. I think that's a pretty uh, admirable uh, career path to be in, really. Yeah, for some, like, it really depends what your priorities are. Like, you know, people always ask me, like, how do you have time to do this? Well, like, I kind of make time and, you know, I don't, I don't own a car. I don't have a mortgage. I don't have kids. So I'm able to structure my life around this. Like, it's different if you have both those things, right? Like, you know, people ask me, oh, do you have all this money? Are you rich? How can you go away for so long? But it's like, okay, yeah, I'm not doing both those things. Like, yeah, if I had a nice house and a nice car and a family, it would be very tough to do these things. But, like, currently I I prioritize my life so that I can go on these trips. It's just they've become really important to me over the years. Um, yeah, it's just something I've always done. So, really, it's all about what your priorities are in life, I think, anyway. I had a conversation with um, Aaron Weinsheimer. I don't know if you listen to that podcast or not. <clears throat> no, he's, he's a sewer for uh, Oveja Negra bikepacking bags. Yep, yep, I know. Yeah, yep. and he, um, he, there was a, a sentence in there. He said, you know, it, similar to you, like well-traveled and, and um, adventurous. And he said that, you know, when I realized that bikepacking, I wanted to make bikepacking a big part of my life, everything in my life had to align with that you know okay like yeah work a family you know everything had to align so that he was able to take off for three months so when you said that when you said people are asking you like oh how do you find the time and in my head i'm like well you make the time like you know depending yeah. on where you are in your life like i'm i'm what you were talking about earlier i'm the guy with a family for uh for me it's like yeah you make the time you 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 try yeah. you try to carve out a couple weeks or a month um, to get away if you can and uh, you just you just make yeah. it work yeah that's awesome it's, i'm always inspired when i meet bike touring families like i did yeah. uh i did warm showers with a french family um in park city utah and their kids were four and six so they'd done several trips together as a family like they had recumbent tandems which is oh, pretty cool. cool yeah so yeah like you know they're just an example like anything's possible if you really make the time wait a um, recumbent and- a recumbent tandem yeah, so like I don't the think parents, I've seen that. Yeah, I haven't seen it either. So yeah, it's a recumbent. So the parent, like the both parents, were like in the recumbent position. Would be a seat in the front for the kids, so they have the kids in front. Almost, like, almost like a cargo bike. <laughs> something like that. Yeah, yeah. 
it was super cool and yeah they've been like all over europe and like you know they, they did they said it was difficult like it wasn't like a piece of cake like you'd be going on your own or as a couple but they made it work and the kids were really proud of it too like they they asked me like oh are you a biker i said yeah i was like oh we're bikers too yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really proud of the fact that they they did that so i thought that was super inspirational so it just it just shows like young old like you can make the time for it and you can prioritize it if you really want to yeah absolutely so yeah. uh for those of you who out there who are listening who, who don't know you Okay. Um, yeah. just tell us, I mean, we've talked a little bit about kind of what you're about, but so, yeah. uh, Tara Weir, is that how you pronounce yeah. your last name? Um, yeah, and then, so, so how did you tell us about your, your past? Like, how did you get into cycling or, or how did you start say, uh, where did your adventures start as you were growing up? Sure. So, um, I've always been into cycling. It started probably in my preteens. Um, my dad actually got me into to riding, um, so he was a cyclist his whole life, like more like uh, long distance, like randonneur style events. Um, so I started cycling with him when I was probably about 13 years old. It was like a father daughter bonding experience. So we would go on lots of road rides together and we joined a club. Where we'd do anywhere like from 100 to like 300 plus kilometers events. Um, and then I got into travel a bit later at age 24. Um, just did a lot of bike packing or sorry, backpacking. Uh, and then I, I actually read this book that my dad told me about. It was called The Masked Rider uh, Cycling in West Africa by Neil Peart. And he's the drummer from the Canadian band Rush. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, I've I don't know if you've heard of I have. Rush. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'm so, 48 years old. I'm all about Rush. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <you're good. laughs> nice. yeah, anyway, so I read this book. And, yeah, so he was on a supported tour through West Africa. And just the way that he described his trip, that he was traveling at people speed and then connecting at, with the cultures in a way that you couldn't do on a bus. Like instead of like whipping through from tourist site to tourist site, you were really immersing yourself slowly in the culture and with the people around you. And I, that really resonated with me. So I just thought these are my two favorite things, traveling and cycling. And the fact that I could combine them just sounded like a perfect thing. So I started to do a bit of research and I, and I found out that there were people going for like years around the world with this mode of travel. So it really inspired me. So I started to do a whole bunch of research and route planning. And then I ended up doing my very first trip. Well, it was supported. It was in uh, Tibet oh, with a couple of friends. And that was like my kind of my introduction into touring. And then I set up on my own after that through China and Southeast Asia. And that was in 2011. So that would have been my very first trip. And then following that, I ended up biking for almost two years. And that was um, Mongolia, China, Pakistan, India, Central Asia, and then a little break. And then South Korea, um, Thailand, yeah, jumping all over the place, uh, wow. Australia, New Zealand. So, yeah, all over the map. Um, and then my last trip was the Wild West route. And that was actually my my first trip in North America. Like most of my other travels have been in Asia, yeah, Australia, South America, so all over the place. Um, and yeah, I also did a trip in um, South America along the Carretera Austral, and that would have been in 2013. So oh, wow. yeah, so kind of jumped all over the place. You've got a few miles on your ass. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah yep, yep, that's for sure. Like this trip would make it about 37,000 kilometers of touring. That's amazing. Yeah. Quite a few, yeah, yeah, definitely a few miles there. Yeah, yeah and how, how many um, how many revisions of your rig have you had, like in the time that you've kind of started? So my very first bike was a Trek 520, 
Um, I didn't know any different. Like my dad said, yeah, this is the bike you need to buy. It's a Trek 520. Like his friend worked at Trek. So oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a really solid bike, but I didn't know any different. Um, so I bought a Trek 520 and I did my trip through China and Southeast Asia. And yeah, really great bike. Like it was a really good recommendation. But then I kind of got the taste for more off-road stuff. So I ended up buying a British bike. It's called a Thorn Nomad. I got that in 2013. And my very first trip on that was um, was South America, the Carretar Austral down to Ushuaia. And so I've had the same bike up until today. And I guess now like it's like the, the setup is considered a bit old school because I have 26 inch wheels and gas B brakes. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, what? You mean, I mean, they're super reliable and you, you know? Yeah. Yeah. They've only really? been stopping people for like, I don't know how many years. <laughs> like yeah, you, you know, and people, people don't think about that when you, you know, head out on a big trip. I mean, I do cause I'm running hydro brakes and, and you, you think about that. Right. And suspension, you think about, oh, what if I blow, blow air cylinder, blow my air cylinder or, uh, break a cable, like you can fall and your bars can twist around. You can pop a, a hydro cable out of your brakes. Right. Yeah. So reliability yeah. is huge. So that's actually pretty smart. Yeah. Well, that was the reason why I bought it because I was told, you know, the standard around the world is a 26 inch wheel. You know, if you're going to be touring in Africa or South America, good luck finding anything other than 26 inch. But no, it's funny because on, when I was in the States, I was told, yeah, good luck finding a 26 inch wheel anywhere. <laughs> like, uh, yeah. you know, like 27.5 or 29 or so. Yeah. It's funny how that's changed over the years, but um, you could just go into a, a hardware store and rip off a wheel off one of the other <laughs> the hardware store yeah. bikes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I've had this bike for the whole time, but uh, my setup has changed. So I went with the traditional, like, four pannier setup, um, rack bag, handlebar bag. And then for this trip, I changed to, like, more of a bike packing setup, but it's almost like a hybrid. So I'd have, like, your frame bag, seat pack, top two bags, but I still had the small Ortley panniers on the back. And I'm, I'm really happy with that setup. Um, for me, going ultra, ultra light is pretty difficult. Like, I'm not doing single track or that kind of stuff like i'm more into like gravel roads two track like quad trails that kind of thing so i, I was really happy with the way this one worked out for this trip yeah and it's a long i mean how long were you were you on the wild west route for so i actually started my trip in canmore and i ended up doing the great divide canada section so that was about a week and then on the wild west it was yeah the whole trip was 11 weeks total so i guess 10 weeks in the wild west it would have been about that yeah. Awesome. Did you have like a, a time frame in mind? Um, I yeah, like two and a half, three months. I thought it, I actually thought it would it, I would do it in less time, but I ended up having a couple of issues at the beginning, like uh, lost a bolt, I had like a chain problem, but it wasn't really that big of a deal. Um, my my whole plan was to try and do about seventy to eighty kilometers a day, and I was actually surprised how long that took. Like it was a bit slower than I expected. It just meant though, like eight to ten hours a day. <laughs> riding um and yeah on previous trips like that you know 80 kilometers would have taken me sometimes six seven hours not a whole day um like i've done quite a bit of off-road but not this much continuous off-road like compared to my last trips a lot more off-road on this one for sure yeah it's definitely a slower pace i think on on the dirt than on a road with skinny tires and Oh yeah, for sure. But yeah. it's much more enjoyable. Like I, I really, even like the, the really short sections I had to do on the paved road, I just, I forgot how frustrating it is to have traffic like whipping by oh, you all yeah. the time. There's nothing, nothing relaxing, relaxing or enjoyable about it. So 
I just like the silence of being on dirt and like it, it could be a totally quiet paved road. I'm not against pavement, but just I just can't stand traffic. I feel the same way. Yeah, I feel the yeah. same way. Whenever I've I've done a couple uh, events, and whenever it goes onto the pavement, I'm just like, oh, get me off of this. Yeah. I just want to be in the yeah. woods. <laughs> well, totally. Yeah, same here. Yeah, yeah. The woods are, for me. It's deserts. That's my favorite type of terrain. So, um, getting into Utah and Arizona was really exciting for me. Yeah. It was definitely a bucket list thing to ride through those landscapes, and I was not disappointed in any way. It was just surreal. It was like being on another planet, especially in Utah. So that was really something. So how did you uh, come across the Wild, Wild West route? So um, I did a podcast with uh, Clee Roy and Kurt Refsnyder a few yeah, back. Great, yeah. and, oh, awesome! And and uh, and it just I got goosebumps after that because I really wanted to ride it. Um, yeah. But and so the sister route to the Tour Divide. What made you choose one over the other? Well, so like my original plan was to actually do the Great Divide. So I was supposed to go last year. Like it was, it was remember it was that really bad fire year. So mm. like smoke more. It was really terrible. But um, I ended up biking from where I work, which is Dawson Creek, BC, to Canmore. And I was supposed to continue on the Great Divide, but I ended up overdoing it and blowing my knee out. So I parked my bike there, decided to continue this year. Um, and then it was only in May, like like a couple months before I was supposed to leave on the Great Divide, that I heard about the Wild West route. I think someone on my Facebook, a Facebook friend posted about it. And I saw that it was going through Utah and Arizona. And I'd kind of planned to detour that way anyway off the Great Divide. And I just thought this was just perfect. This is exactly where I wanted because I was mo probably more drawn to Utah and Arizona than any other place in the U.S. So I just thought, yeah, I'll just give it a try. I'll, I'll continue where I left off from Canmore. And then it, the routes kind of, they converge right at the border by Roosevelt. So I just basically biked to Roosevelt and then turned on to the Wild West. Awesome. Yeah. Um, and then so not a lot of planning then, really? I mean, well, some planning, yeah. obviously, but it kind of came up pretty quickly, the decision. Yeah, like, well, this route was really different from my past trips because basically, like, I had a GPS track in front of me that would tell me where food was, where water was, where I could camp. So this was a nice luxury. I'd never had that before. Usually I would have paper maps and I'd, like, you know, kind of make tracks as I went, like on a, um, a website, like Ride with GPS or something like that. But this was all planned out in front of me. So you don't really need to plan that much when it's already planned out for you. Yeah. And yeah, you just got to trust the GPS track and hope that it's good riding ahead of you. But it was great, like really accurate. So yeah, planning isn't really much of a thing. Um, I guess you'd have to plan for food and water because you had some gaps where there wasn't much water or food. But really, that's all. You didn't have to do much research at all, really. So um, what was your... Tell us about your kit. Like, what did you kind of bring for that for that trip? So I had a full camping setup. Um, my tent, it's not ultra light. It's an MSR Hubba Hubba 2 person. I had a full cooking kit, like an MSR Whisper light stove, like the multi-fuel stoves. Um, like minimal clothing, like one pair of shoes. Like um, I always ride with clipless pedals. I'm just used to it. So I, always, I only had the one pair of shoes. Um, full rain gear rain jacket, rain pants. I had my toolkit. trying to think what else, um, like the bare minimum of electronics. I used to carry like a laptop and all that, but oh, I really, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I used to have everything. I really downsized in that way. Um, cause like I didn't really, I wasn't really active on the internet this trip, which was actually really nice. Like not, you know, I used to update all the time and do blog posts when I was on the road. So I didn't really need as much of that. And yeah, so I didn't have a spare tire, like just like your basics for spares and clothing. And I'm trying to think 
think in my head what else I had. What, what other stuff do you bring? What um, did you use for charging? So you brought minimal electronics. Do, do you run a dynamo or? So I actually had a dynamo fitted when I bought this bike and I realized that it actually, for me, of limited use when I'm off road is because I can't get the mm. speed up to get a consistent charge. So I felt if you're not going 15 kilometers an hour, you're not really getting a good charge. So I didn't really use it. It's just kind of sitting there now. Um, I had a solar panel battery pack. Um, and I actually barely used my solar panel. So mainly I had a, the battery pack would charge my phone. Um, I had a Garmin and it had it took double A. So I'd recharge the double A batteries and yeah, that's about it. So for navigation, I just had the smart, like the, the principal navigation was used with them with the GPS with the Garmin. And then the, uh, the smartphone would be my backup. And that had the, um, the wild west route app on it. So yeah, those are, those are what I use for navigation, like no paper maps of any kind. I always like the idea of carrying devices that just take AA batteries. Like I, yeah. I, I don't run a dynamo either, <clears throat> mostly because I just haven't bothered. I can't afford it. But um, how do those yeah. chargers work? So you charge, I mean, do they, are they effective? Like the, you just plug it into your cash battery and charge a couple AA's. Do they work pretty well? Yeah. So I got like, um, yeah, it charges four AA's at once. It does take quite a long time. Oh yeah. I was wondering. Yeah, it's very slow. So for that reason, I actually had three sets of batteries. I know it sounds ridiculously heavy, but uh, I also use this because I'm a forestry worker and I use the same Garmin to work in the woods. And like, I just don't like the idea of having USB only because if that fails, you got no, you got no other means to charge it. Mm -hmm. And if you know I had a problem with these batteries, you could always buy double A's. So yeah, my charger would fit four double A's. Um, so I'd always, I'd always have one set in the Garmin, then four. And like six batteries, like three sets of batteries would last usually about six days. So I'd only have to charge them, yeah, once a week. And like it, it would take like up to six hours to charge these things. So that's the one downfall, even like eight hours sometimes. So I would just basically, I'd plug them into my battery pack and then just have it sit in my front, my um, handlebar bag and just let it charge while I, I rode. Um, yeah, that's a good idea. I mean, um... I, I, when I'm, when I'm in the Valley riding around, if I'm carrying my GPS, I always just, you know, I, I have rechargeable batteries, yes. but they, they tend not to have the same lifespan as, as say lithiums, which are pretty amazing. No, absolutely. Um, yeah. And I've, I've seen those rechargers and I'm like, oh, well, six hours isn't bad. You know, that's, that's basically a day of riding and you know, the, yeah. you running an e-trex for navigation. Uh, no, it's, um, yes, Mavic 64 SD. It's more of like a hiking GPS. It's kind of bulky. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, but it, it's yeah, it's quite good. Yeah, not they, user friendly is an Etrex. It's not a touchscreen one. Did you just call the Etrex user friendly? It's horrible. <laughs> it's horrible, <laughs> man. It's is it really okay. Well, I mean, a lot of people are running touchscreen GPSs now, like the Wahoos and whatnot, and and uh, they seem a lot easier to navigate. But yeah. when I first got my Etrex, I was like, and you know, I'm I I think I'm pretty savvy electronically, but I was just like, oh my god, who designed the interface on this thing? It's so gnarly. Okay. That little nipple thing, and you're kind of trying to move around, and especially oh, when you're riding, it's really tough to uh, if your hands moving at all, you'll you'll miss navigate and not miss navigate, <laughs> but miss navigate the interface and yeah, yeah. But I I mean I do run it. I love it, and the reason I love it so much is because it could fall off the bike and fall down a cliff, and it would be fine. And, Same with mine. Yeah. Very robust. Yeah, it's like I use it for work when I'm working in forestry and hiking and, you know, dropping it. Yeah, it's really robust. And, yeah, I just don't like the idea of, like, a flimsy little cord for, like, a USB charge. And I know this thing is bomb-proof, so it's a bit heavier. But, yeah, I just that's what I always use. Yeah, and you want to 
be able to rely on your navigation for sure. Pretty important. Yes. <laughs> no kidding. You don't really carry paper maps to the wild restaurant. You could, but there's so many individual map sets you need that I don't think it's really feasible option yeah. <laughs> like obscure roads and tracks that aren't named so i don't know how many how you'd be able to get these maps you can but it's just i think it'd be too complicated to carry all these map sets so yeah the, the gps it's it's pretty important <laughs> yeah and i think it means a lot for you saying that because with your experience in in the bush and and your experience riding bikes and touring like i know a lot of people really rely on paper or or they'll use their phone for navigation i use my phone as backup but i would never I wouldn't want to expose it to the elements to use it as my primary navigation device. No, yes, yeah, same thing. <clears throat> but uh, no, that, that I think that speaks a lot to to the re- reliability of uh, of the Garmin stuff. I mean, I really like it. Oh yeah, I like using that stuff. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so the first your first week, uh, obviously you're pretty experienced. So it's not like it's it was a new experience for you to to get out and start touring. But what was that first week like? Especially well, in North America, it would have been your first tour. Yeah. Right? So what did it feel like? Well, it was really, I was really nervous because of my injury from the year before. Like it wasn't a serious injury, but it was such just like an overuse thing, but it did take a couple months of physiotherapy to, for it to heal. So I was just nervous. I was like, you know, can I still do this? Am I able to still tour? Like I wasn't even totally sure, even though I felt strong going into it. So the first day, like I took it really slow and I was just, yeah, just nervous that something might go wrong, but it was so thrilling just to be back on the road, just like a you know, huge relief that I could still do like probably my most fa- my most favorite thing in the world. Um, and the riding was just absolutely spectacular. Like I had nothing but sun the whole week and it could have been the total opposite because, you know, you know what the mountains are like very volatile weather. Yeah. Um, so it was just amazing. I think probably one of the best days I've had on a bike was on the great divide section of the, the Canada, the Canada route. Um, it was, yeah, climbing over a pass called cabin pass. Mm-hmm. And it was just like a perfect day, just um, sunny, a little bit of cloud cover, light breeze. And every now and, then, every now and then the sun would kind of duck behind the clouds and you'd get that silver lining. And like just quiet two-track, lined with wildflowers, and just the most beautiful climb up into these mountains. And it was just spectacular. So kind of that day I just realized how happy I was to be doing this again. And I realized this is – this is such an important part of my life to be able to go on this trip. And I was just really happy that I had my health back and I could do it. Mm-hmm. So that, that was super awesome. Um, so I'd almost call it the perfect week, like weather wise, my mood, like my body was cooperating. It was, yeah, it was just amazing. Like one of the best weeks of cycling I can remember really. So did that, so did that foreshadow some more gnarly weather kind of down the route or? I actually got really lucky with weather like <laughs> Cause I was really worried. Um, I probably only had about five days of rain on the trip and I managed to sit out three of them. So I really got lucky. Like, um, October, especially, I don't think I saw a drop of rain for my last five weeks of my trip. Oh, wow. Well, I guess you're pretty, pretty far South by then. Right. Yeah. And it's like, I guess they have their monsoon season Mm. in September, but then I got there in October and it was just perfect. Like not too hot, really dry. Yeah. I can only think of one really bad day of rain um in idaho like northern idaho that's like the only bad day of weather i had but i was 
brought in by this amazing couple at a campground who had a roaring fire and they fed me food, gave me beer, <laughs> managed to dry out all my clothes that were soaking wet. So it really wasn't that bad. So yeah, it's, I, I got so lucky with the weather. I couldn't believe it really. So tell us about that experience. So you, you, you're in the rain, what most of the day, and then you roll into this campground and then this, these people just take pity on you or tell us about that. So yeah, I, uh, this was uh, just north of a town called Chalice in Idaho. So it was, yeah, it was kind of steady, drizzly rain all day, pretty cold. And, you know, it, for me, even like the best rain gear, you're eventually going to get wet, no matter how much, how much you, you try. Like you're just riding in the rain for six hours, you're going to get wet. So I was, yeah, the last hour I was pretty cold, pretty miserable, trying to stay positive, but really not having a great time. <laughs> so, I, but I knew there was this campground ahead, so I kept pushing myself. Um, and yeah, this pickup, I think, drove by me and they weighed and I just kind of like, you know, looked up and tried to like raise my shaking hand. <laughs> I must have looked pretty miserable. Um, but I rolled into this campground. I was rushing around trying to set up my tent just so I wouldn't freeze and get everything ready. And this couple pulled up in a pickup truck and they said, oh, we saw you riding. Like, it must you must be pretty cold. You didn't look like you were having a great time. <laughs> No, yeah, it's been, yeah, not the greatest day. And they said, well, do you drink beer? I said, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> and they said, yeah, we're just camped across the bridge over there. Like, come on over if you want to. So I, yeah, I took them up on that offer. I had to, you know, quickly like set up my tent and just lie in my sleeping bag for half hour just to warm up. <laughs> so I went over to these people and they were a retired couple and they had this huge roaring fire going and they had like a couple beers there and they said, yeah, like, sit down like you know do you want a beer are you hungry we have food so that these wonderful people just fed me gave me drinks and then they said i could dry my stuff by their fire um and it was just amazing like it was just like these are just like i guess trail angels is the expression yeah. <laughs> like just these people just showed up at the right time and just made my day so much better and they gave me coffee the next morning and they were just amazing and this this happened many times this wasn't the only experience by far yeah, that's the, those are the stories I like to hear because, you know, sometimes when you're just down and you're just out in it and you just feel like shit and you just want to, yeah. you just kind of miss your bed sometimes, Yeah, <laughs> you oh, know? Yeah. 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 Sure. And then uh, I think I hear, I hear uh, all the stories that I've heard, they're, they're always positive about the, the kindness of strangers. And, and so you had some more experiences like that down the route. Oh yeah. Um, well, that was one of many. Um, one of my favorite encounters, um, so I, I also, I had, I was having some issues. Uh, I lost, uh, an important bolt off of my eccentric bottom bracket and because it's a British bike. It was this really exotic, strange bolt that I couldn't find in any hardware oh, store no. in the state. So yeah, I, I, I should have known to carry a spare, just totally forgot. Um, so I rode with, with one bolt and like my bottom bracket was making this clanking noise for like, I don't know how long. So I ended up getting to this little town called St. Regis and I realized, okay, I have to do something about this or I'm going to damage my bottom bracket. Yeah. So uh, I ended up getting on the phone, calling all these shops and I found one that carried something similar to what I need, but I, I would have to wait in this town for at least four days to get this part. So I was hanging out at the post office and this older man uh, came up to me and he started asking me about my trip. He said, Oh, I used to bike all the time. You know, where are you, where are you headed? And, it's really great what you're doing and I said okay I'm biking across the states but I'm going to be stuck here for a couple of days because I'm, I'm missing this important bolt and I can't buy it anywhere and he said well we'll put you up I said really he said yeah yeah just let me ask my wife so he phoned his wife 
And he said, yeah, no problem. So I ended up staying with this couple. Their names were Billy and Jennifer. They were retired and they were the most amazing people. Like we just clicked and I hung out there for a couple of days and they said, you know, we, we've never done this before, but you know, <laughs> you're here. and like, they couldn't get over how like serendipitous, serendipitous it was that we just sort of met in this way. So I ended up spending four days at their house, just hanging out with them until this part arrived. And it was just the most awesome four days, just getting to know these people. So that was definitely a pretty memorable encounter with those two. That's awesome. Actually, I just brought up a picture of your, your finished picture. So are, did you ride at single speed or were you running a roll off or something? Roll off. You were, you were. Okay. How did yeah. you like that? The roll off? Yeah. Oh, it's been, well, I haven't, I've on that bike, I think I have 32,000 kilometers on it now and no issues. So pretty happy with it. Cause I don't know how many derailers you'd go through in that amount of time. Shout out to roll off. Right. Yeah. That's crazy. Um, yeah, I've, I've, I've thought about running that. Um, did you find it, is it super heavy? It's pretty heavy. Eh? I don't really know any better because my bike has always been heavy. Uh, so right. I, <laughs> I'm trying, like, it's obviously a lot heavier than the Trek 520 that I used to ride, but I don't really notice the weight, but I think if you are conscious of it, it definitely is heavy. Like my bike unloaded, I think is about 35 pounds. So I don't know if that's on the heavy side for a touring bike. I would assume so. That's pretty heavy, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Anything yeah. over 30 pounds is usually pretty heavy. But the thing is, you're training, like the reliability of that, 32,000 kilometers on the same, you know, I know. gearbox. I know. That's pretty amazing. And you change the oil, yeah. what, every, how many kilometers are you supposed to change the oil in that? Every 5,000. And it's a really simple procedure. So yeah. I, well, I wouldn't ever trade it for anything else. But I do understand that, you know, like that hub alone is like, thousand us or something like yeah. that for canadian so it's it's definitely a hefty investment but for the riding that i've done i i would i wouldn't trade it for anything else like i think it's absolutely worth it i think a lot of people don't think about that and they go on these big trips and they they neglect their machine a little bit you know and they end up in trouble like again if if i were to go out like next year before i go out and race again uh, it's like new new rubber new drivetrain pretty much maybe a new bottom bracket. Like I just replace it all because I barely finished the last race I tried on the tires I had like oh, really? barely, like I, I punctured yeah. and my sealant held it and I was, I was gonna, I was gonna get a new tire in Kimberly, but then I just like, nah, whatever. And then yeah. it's so remote from Kimberly to, to Invermere. That stretch is, is pretty remote. And okay. uh, I nursed that thing all the way back. And the whole time I was like, whoa, dude, why don't you just get new rubber? Because it's just on your mind the whole time. And it yeah. changes your yeah. lines. It changes how you ride, you, you know? Yeah. So, um, yeah, people need to put the money in their rigs for sure, I think. I know, but bike tourists are cheap, right? You know, was <laughs> True. For a couple of years, like, I was stretching those things pretty far. <laughs> like, I remember bringing my bike back to a shop when I finished my two years, and the guy looked at my sprock, and he was just like, are you serious? <laughs> <laughs> just <laughs> the shark fin teeth. They're just probably yeah, all worn yeah, to yeah, nothing. Totally, uh, shark fin, like, jaws, kind of crazy. Oh, yeah, so it's, funny. It's like, I can't believe you you uh, you wrote on this. It's like, yep, oh, it kept going. So whatever. You know? Um, and yeah, like for me though, like spending money on tires is definitely a big thing. Um, and I I only go with one brand, and that's Schwalbe. Um, I got twenty thousand k out of one set with no. Wow, punctures. really? Oh yeah, they're really good tires. Like they're not. I so I don't run tubeless. Another thing that shocks people, I guess, because tubeless are all, are all the rage these days, but. I used Schwalbe tires for this trip again, and I got no flats, even in Arizona. Wow, that's great. That, 
that was I was really worried about that because I met um, a Dutch guy who was actually the first one to go northbound in the Wild West, and his name was Geert. And he told me, "Oh yeah, I had flats, and I had, or sorry, I had tubes, and I had about twenty flats." What? Oh my god! <laughs> yeah. So he was saying like you might want to consider tubeless, but I'd hate to tell him that I didn't have any. <laughs> but I don't know if it was because of uh, the tires, or I actually I did get sealant put in them in, in Moab, so that must have done something. But that was my biggest concern was the the tires, especially in Arizona with all the many thorns. So, but yeah, I got through with not one flat, so I was pretty stoked about that. That's crazy. What do they call those little uh, the little cactus cactus balls that hang out? What are they called? Uh, goat heads. Goat heads. Yeah. The biggest nemesis down there. Yeah. yeah, those are like they have like yeah, they look like the head of a goat, just like two like huge thorns. Yeah, and they kind of hang out by the roadsides, and they really embed themselves into tires. <laughs> so that would be the biggest issue down there. But yeah, I guess I I got through just fine. So. I was uh, I was riding in Tempe. Uh, this is a number of years ago, but it was just a trail ride, maybe twenty or thirty k. And uh, I was worried the whole time. I was like, oh, I'm totally gonna flat, man. It's just like there's pins and spikes. Every everything's dangerous there, man. It's crazy. Everything, was, uh, yeah, very defensive, like very spiky. Totally, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and, and I I finished the ride and. I picked up a massive framing nail on my ride home, like just a big nail oh, on the no. road. Yeah, I was just riding back oh, to the really? house. It's like, ah, oh, oh, I man. totally almost made it. Oh, <laughs> yeah. that's so funny. That's a big slap in the face. Yeah, right before you get yeah. right on the long stretch. Yeah. So lots of high points. Did you have any like really low points that you can remember that you want to? Yeah, reflect? like I got, I oddly had food poisoning oh, when yeah. I was there. I didn't think that was something I'd get in the USA. You know, I've definitely had it in, you know, Central Asia places like that but yeah like it was really bad I was uh, I remember like riding into this town called Chalice and just feeling really off like no energy and I just thought okay am I that tired like do I really need to take a break and I remember the last mile just being excruciating it's like man do I have to get off and walk and it was like a flat mile into this town I, I couldn't even do it I felt so out of it and I ended up staying with a warm showers host that night. And again, I felt super sick, just really tired. And I thought like, wow, I must be really fatigued. And then it ended up getting worse. Like it turned into like shivers, like and getting sick. So I just had to like basically shut myself in a hotel room for a couple of days after that happened. So that was a really tough day. And yeah, it took me a couple of weeks to recover. Like some days I had to just, um, nap on the side of the road just so I could keep going because my energy was so my energy levels were so low so that really sucked um and that dragged on for a little bit so yeah other than like like health complications I'm trying to think like I didn't have a whole lot of mechanical issues like that bolt problem was pretty annoying that was like you know a couple weeks of trying to deal with the frustrations of the mailing system and finding mm. something um but yeah, like there were definitely a couple of tough days in terms of the riding, but nothing that really defeated my spirits, I guess. Um, oh yeah, actually, yeah, going through the Magruder Corridor in uh, Idaho, like there were there was one really tough day of climbing, and then the road was just really steep, and it was like you were riding over like mini boulders, just like really rough and really rocky. Yeah. I remember being pretty defeated at the end of that day. Like I got to where I wanted to, but it was like all my energy was just totally drained. Um, I had to push up the last kilometer because I just couldn't make it. I just felt that tired. So, yeah, just days like that, but that's all part of a tour. Like, you'll have ups and downs. Yeah. You'll have days where you give it your all and you barely make it. Um, yeah, headwind was really a thing on this trip. 
like usually like the uh, headwind is probably like my least favorite thing. <laughs> so defeating headwind is so defeating. It's just the most demoralizing, most horrible thing to go through. You know, you're like giving it a hundred, hundred percent. You're, you know, going like six kilometers an hour. So I've definitely been through that, but this trip, it wasn't really a thing. It was more like the road services were pretty tough at points, like not to the point where it was mostly unrideable, just like very slow going really bumpy and like i didn't have suspension on my bike either which I'm, I'm used to but so yeah you just gotta get it in your head that you're not going very fast at times like you know five kilometers an hour up a steep hill was a reality sometimes and i realized i could walk faster so little things like that throughout the trip do you think that sickness was something waterborne um i treat all my water so i don't i, I really don't know um it might have been something I ate at the campground, like the couple that fed me. Maybe something was off in the food, or maybe it was something that I ate. But I, yeah, like I couldn't see it being water because I'm so adamant about treating all my water. But who knows, right? Like it was just such a freak thing. I really have no idea what did it. No idea. How do you treat? What do you use to treat your water? Um, so I have a UV light. It's this product called a Camelback All Clear. It unfortunately doesn't exist anymore, but it's it's a bit bulky. You screw it on top of a water bottle and then you press a button and it basically counts down from 60 seconds and it treats it with a UV light. Um, so I use that as my primary. Um, I have tablets for backup in case that were to fail. And then if I get like a siltier source, I'll use uh, this little cap that goes on top of the bottle to kind of strain it out. Mm. But yeah, I love this Camelback thing, but unfortunately they stopped making it a couple of years ago, but I've held on to mine. Yeah, I wonder why they, they discontinued that. I don't know. Like it's a bit on the heavy side. It's a bit bulkier, but to me, it's worked better than anything else I've used. So I'm not totally sure why they got rid of it. Have you ever used a, a Sawyer? Have you ever seen a Sawyer water um, filter? The Sawyer Mini. Is that yeah. is a little tiny thing. Yeah, I, I love that thing. I, I carry that even trail riding now. Like just with even yeah. with a little bag. So just in case you know you're out and about and say you're riding and you do run out of water, and you, yeah. you could take it out of a cow pond and filter it through that really? thing yeah and it would it's like it it kills like something like five or it filters out five nine you know 99.999 um wow. yeah they send them down to villages in africa to help them uh clean awesome. their water yeah they're pretty amazing the only i they say the only what they're about like that big right like okay size of a maybe a little bit bigger than a like a noon tab bottle kind of thing yeah well, and, uh, yeah and then the only the only drawback is you do have to back flush it from time to time Okay. Um, just because it'll, you know, it'll get schmegged up if you're if it's silty or whatever. But it's better than those like pump filters. I used to have one of those MSR ones, and it would take what like half an hour just to get like. Oh really? Years. Yeah, oh. I, I I can't use those anymore. Those were definitely a little too much effort for me. Yeah, yeah. The yeah. Sawyer's not bad. It comes with that little bag. But okay. um, what I do is get um like the a smart water bottle. And I strap that to my down tube and you can actually just screw the filter right onto the bottle and then just like, you know, squirt it into your receptacle. So I, I my so the, the, the smart water bottle is always a dirty vessel. So it's just full of dirty yeah. water. And then, but around here in the mountains, man, I drink out of the creeks here all the time. Oh yeah. That's, <laughs> that's a, such a luxury. Yeah. Yeah. Like most of Montana and Idaho, I totally could have done that. Like basically my rule is anything coming off the mountain is okay to drink. If it's pooling at the bottom, Maybe not so much, right? Yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. There is so much water in that area that I never had to really worry. Like I'm still 
a bit paranoid and I probably treat more than I need to, but I bet you you would have been fine with most of those sources, but I, I still always treat it just in case. I think that's a good policy anyway, because you, know, you, know, yeah. you never know. There, I, I tell people sometimes I drink out of creeks, but it's like, well, you never know. There could be a dead elk laying in that creek up, <laughs> up high, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, uh, through the when you got south uh, in the warmer climates, like how much uh, how much water were you carrying through there? Um, the most I carried at once was probably ten liters, so that was for a couple of days. Oh my God, so much water! Yeah, I carried twenty five before <laughs> crossing wow. the Australian. That's my record, if you can believe it. That was insane. Yeah, that was well. It's heavy, but I find you only really notice it when you're going up. Like on the flat, it's slow, but like going up a hill, you're just like almost stopped dead. You're like, well, okay, this is yeah. really. This is pretty heavy. On the flats, I, it must give you inertia, right? It just gives you some inertia yeah. to push you through. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, so yeah, 10 liters was the most. Um, but actually, it wasn't as hot as I expected. Like, actually, a lot of Arizona was actually pretty chilly. Yeah. In mid to late October, I was at higher elevations. But, like, the hottest part was probably around Moab, and that was about 28 degrees was the hottest it got. So not crazy, like, not over the top. Um but yeah, on average through Utah and Arizona, I'd probably carry seven liters a day. Like 10 was the most, but that was, yeah, it wasn't a crazy amount. And I'd often find I wouldn't even drink that much because it wasn't that hot. So um, yeah, 10 liters was the most for sure. So when you first were riding south, I, I, I have a kind of a real soft spot for, for Utah, just just oh, because like it's it's like Mars, Mars, right? It's just, it's so crazy. It, it Every day, like my jaw was dropped. It was just, I just... It was almost like someone's computer generated fantasy landscape. I just yeah. thought, how can someone, how can rock formations just be this way? How, how did the earth create something this spectacular? Like every single day in Southern Utah, I was just completely blown away. And it, it far surpassed my expectations. It's just one of those places that has always been in my imagination that I always wanted to see. And to be able to ride through that landscape all around you by yourself on a dirt road was just absolutely surreal. And really fulfilling so it was i'd say for sure it was the highlight of my trip yeah um and it's always amazing to be able to pass through places that are unlike anywhere else you've seen like i think i've you know i've seen a few places on this planet but yeah. then it's all it always like renews that wanderlust in you when you get to a place that's totally different than anything else you've seen and makes you want to see more and more and utah was a place like that and i would definitely go back there like it's probably in my top three places in the world now for amazing. sure do you remember that? That do you remember the moment where that landscape kind of started coming over the horizon? You were like, "Holy crap! Look at that!" Yeah. I was so excited. Um, so I, I actually um, there's part of the Wild West route that I wasn't able to do because of the weather. It was a high, higher elevation road, so I ended up taking a shortcut into the desert. And I just remember when like um, the color, like the cliffs, started to appear on the horizon, like those kind of like red rock formations and i was just i was so excited like i just wanted i stopped probably every like 100 meters to take a photo <laughs> i was just really really amazed it just it just seemed surreal that it was actually appearing before my eyes that it was, it was actually in the landscape like something that you had in the back of your head forever and to actually be moving through it and experiencing it like that like it was one of the most exciting days i think i had in the whole trip just for it to finally show itself like that that's amazing did you ever um like um strip your rig down and just go for a trail ride at any at any point no like i wish i almost had more time to do that because there's so many awesome places along the route like you know the famous mountain bike centers of moab and sedona like if i did have more time i definitely would have spent a couple of days just wandering around like without the load 
because it could it could actually open up like a lot more trails like with my setup i can't really do single track it's a bit too heavy mm. so it, you're limited in that way so i wish i gave myself more time but with i kind of had an ambitious plan for this trip so, like i knew that i could finish it in the time that i had but i knew it would be tight so i didn't really allow myself that much time to do those little side trips and i kind of wish i did so if I were to go back to that area, I'd probably try and do more things like that instead of just like straight touring and not really taking the time to do those little excursions on the side. Yeah. So when you got through, um, um, when you got through Utah, <clears throat> then what's the next part of the trip like? When you you kind of come out of the high desert and then you're you're down in and you hit, head into Arizona. Yeah. So like uh, the start of the Arizona part of the Wall of Rest Street, it's it's the it's Grand Canyon country. And um, one of the highlights of Arizona was you get to pass through uh, the Navajo Nation Reserve. So it's a big area to the east of the Grand Canyon that requires a special permit. But that was really cool because it's like a huge area of just like high elevation grasslands, canyons, badlands. So that's that's a higher elevation part and just like absolute solitude. You don't really see much settlement. I only saw a couple people. So that was really amazing. And then actually a lot of Arizona is a ponderosa pine forest. It's actually, I think, home to some of the largest stretches of ponderosa pine in the world, what I was told. So kind of unexpected because in most people's heads, Arizona is just that canyon country. That's what a lot of people see. They see saguaro cactus and canyons. Mm. But actually a lot of it, you have these beautiful high elevation pine forests that just stretch on and on and on. So the north of Arizona was like that, just lots of pine forests in and around Flagstaff. And then you get to some higher elevation stuff like rolling hills. And then, yeah, towards the south is where the cacti start to appear. And yeah, I would say definitely my favorite stretch of Arizona. And one of the highlights of the trip was um, the, the section between Young and Globe. So that's like you're climbing into the higher elevation pine, um, pine lands and then over some mountains. And then you descend towards the Salt River. And then suddenly you just see this huge expanse of saguaro cacti. And I really, really like cacti. I was really, really excited. <laughs> There's all these really cool plants and cacti everywhere. So that was actually another one of those, you know, just wow, jaw-dropping moments for me just to descend into this huge valley. Yeah, what is that? Yeah, that's a piece of cactus wood I isn't actually smuggled awesome. from Arizona. Isn't it rad? <laughs> it's so cool, right? That is really cool. Like, that look at that infrastructure. Like, look at what nature did. It just yeah. grew this 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 grid of wood to support so all the meat. It's so neat. Hey? That's like the skeleton of the cacti. Yeah. The cacti. So okay. so if you take all the juicy stuff out of it, that's what you end up yeah. with. Is this? Uh, I don't even know. Almost like a, like a like one of those finger puzzles. You know, you put your finger. Yeah. Your <laughs> trap. No, not yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's super cool. Yeah. So that was really exciting to see like these gigantic cacti everywhere. Yeah, it's cool. Another, another like you know image I had in my head that yeah I couldn't wait to get to the cactus forest of Arizona, so that's what a lot of the southern section was like. But I'd say yeah, the, it was like the whole Arizona route was probably dominated by um, pine forests, which a lot of people don't expect. Yeah. So yeah, I'd say it was one of the most varied states on the trip by yeah. far. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. Like when you even if you were to drive it, I mean you were actually immersed in it on a bike, but the biodiversity between you know Canmore and New Mexico. It, it must it's crazy like the amount of change or the rate of change you just you know after 100 kilometers it can just be a different landscape 
Oh yeah. And just be able to experience the slow change on a bike and you kind of feel the changes like you're moving with the contours and you know, it's different when you're in a car because yeah. I almost, you almost feel like you're kind of in a box and right. you're watching, you're watching a TV screen, but like being able to like be immersed in that landscape and like, you know, feeling the elevation changes and like the temperature and the wind on your face, it's just a totally different experience. And Cause yeah, I'd say the most scenically spectacular part was probably the beginning because you have these huge mountains like in Kananaskis um, and yeah, that whole area. And then yeah, slowly like the hills change and you have a lot of that ponderosa pine forest, big expanses of sagebrush. Um, and a lot of the route actually followed rivers too. That was a big part of Montana and Idaho. Like your life kind of revolved around the river, right. which was really interesting. Like you would drink out of the river. You'd sometimes wash in the river, camp by the river. So that that's really loved about Montana and Idaho. And then you get into the more arid parts of Utah and Arizona. So just being in that landscape and experiencing the slow change is really quite an amazing experience. And that's definitely unique to bike travel, I'd say. Yeah. Did you, were you afraid ever? Do you ever get asked that? Oh, constantly. And I get, I try not to get annoyed by the question. Oh, I, sorry. I, I take it back. I'll edit it out. No, not you. Not you. <laughs> but people who don't really know, like I hate to think in my head that it's a gendered question because I'm a solo female, but often with certain people, I do think it is. Um, Cause like I say, like they ask me, Oh, are you by yourself? Aren't you scared? And you know, I have a healthy fear, but I think the biggest danger to any touring cyclists would be the traffic like if you're on a busy road with cars that's the biggest danger but on this trip um i did have one kind of sketchy encounter in my tent like i was uh i was camped like um in this pullout not not the greatest camping spot but i kind of freaky like cat type noise like a hissing noise i don't know what it was like it almost sounded like a person trying to imitate a wildcat but i know it was it must have been a wildcat and it was just like a weird low growl and they made the noise twice so that was i couldn't really sleep after that. <laughs> <laughs> i don't think i'm gonna sleep tonight <laughs> yeah yeah that was a bit sketch. But like you know like what i usually do in the bush if i hear a noise i just yell out and try to be intimidating i threw a rock outside just yelled out like hey oh hey oh and then yeah. i looked outside i didn't see anything there but it was just like you know you know what it's like being in a tent if you hear like a squirrel scratching you think oh my god it's like a yeti or something you freak out yeah. right yeah so I didn't really sleep super well after that, but that's the only time I really felt nervous. Like I don't really go out there with a fear of people. Like I was often asked like, Oh, are you carrying protection? Mm. I said, Oh, I have bear spray. And they were like, Oh, do you have a firearm? I said, no, I'm not really comfortable carrying a firearm. Right. Um, I had a couple at a campground actually offer me a gun. It was pretty funny. Wow. Well, it's the USA, right? Yeah. So like it's you're, you're allowed to pack, you know, weapons. So I was yeah, sitting with this couple and they the guy just brought out two handguns and he said, this might be a bit weird for you. Oh, <laughs> like, that is weird. Yeah, I put them on like, uh, yeah, the table. And they, I wasn't afraid of the person or anything, but he said, yeah, if you want, you can have one. I said, no, okay. <laughs> oh my God, he must have a lot of guns if he's going to give yeah. guns away. That's, I think that's kind of horrible, actually. It was a bit weird, yes. Yeah. But yeah, so people were often worried about my safety. Um, I had someone ask me like, oh, do you have a motor on that thing? And I said, no. Said, oh, you better, like, you know, how are you going to get away from people? And <laughs> So I, I asked that question with respect, obviously. Um, I talked to Janie Hayes. I don't know if you listen to that one, but it's an awesome one as well. And, 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 and that, that question of fear is, is common amongst, uh, solo women bike packers. 
they all have had an experience where someone said, aren't you afraid? Like, what if, and like you said, you have a motor, how are you going to get away from the crazy men? They're going to come and try to attack you. And, and it does come from a place of gender. I think it's unfortunate. It is. I want to be valued for my athletic achievement. Like I always feel like with women, we tend to like, not we as in you and me, but some people tend to set the bar lower for a woman. So the fact that I'm out there doing it, I get extra praise. Like, Oh, you're so brave. Oh, how do you do it? You know? And like, I don't, I don't want to be like, you know, have this bias in my head, but I, I, I know that it is about that. Um, because like, yeah, if you're out there in reality, there are very few women that bike pack on their own. I've maybe met five out of a hundred, you know? Yeah. So like, there is this fear that exists with women going out on their own. But the re- reality is that you're not, you're like, yeah, there's the risk of sexual harassment in certain countries. It might be higher for women. But the chance of that happening is just so low, and especially in a place like the USA. So even in a Western country, people were concerned for my safety, like not in a country where it's ill-perceived that a woman is cycling on her own. But in the States, there's nothing weird or unusual in my mind. But still, like people were often afraid for my safety. They thought, you know, it's better that you carry your weapon. Like, how can you sleep alone at night? That's unsafe. So I think there is a bit of paranoia around it but i think in reality like as a woman i'm often given a lot more because people are worried about my safety and people are a lot more protective of me Mm. um so in that way i guess like people seem as more approachable and they want to be out there and protect me but the chance of something bad actually happening to you happening Mm. to you is quite low yeah i would uh, say most people's intent was was out of care and concern yeah. But it's like, you know, I've I've been out there too and I run into people and no one's ever asked me if I'm afraid. And and it, and if <laughs> and it, right? And if they did, I probably would have said, "Yeah, I'm freaking afraid, man. I'm in the middle of the woods yeah, by yeah, myself. It's, it's like scary, I'm a bit scared." Right? Yeah. yeah. I'm not scared yeah, that I'm so going to be attacked or but I don't exactly. know. Yeah, as I always just think like, "Oh, would you ask that question to a man?" And I'm not someone to jump to those conclusions, but I I just I know that it's different. I know that the dynamic is different, but I, I do want to encourage women to get out there and let them know that, yeah, like it's really not as scary as the news tell you it is or as your parents tell you it is or your friends who haven't traveled. Like if you talk to other women, I think they often report the same experiences that I have and they're mostly good. And like, you know, there's some countries that do have a bit of a reputation for being a bit more dodgy for women. And I, you know, I take that, I take in that information and I might not go to those countries, but for the most part, like 99% of this world is good. And they're there to help you. And for someone who's traveled as much as you, I, I think that that should resonate with a lot of people. So for someone who's been around the globe as much as you have to say that, you know, 99%, like a very, very high percentage of, of human beings are good and they're just doing their thing, living their life. And, and I think that that speaks well. I mean, that's great to hear. Absolutely. Yeah. I can only think of really one bad encounter in like the hundreds, if not a thousand or whatever, whatever, whatever that I've had. Like I had one man in Mongolia try to pull me off my bike and grab me. He was a, you know, wow. kind of a drunk guy, but that's the only time it happened. And like, you know, I fought the guy off and it was fine. And yeah, it was a bit jarring, but it didn't like put me off of travel, but like something like that though could happen anywhere. Like it's not really, I don't put it against the country necessarily, but like that was the only bad problem I had out of yeah a thousand encounters. So yeah. it's possible, and like you have to keep your wits about you, and you have to be a smart traveler. But there's no need to go out there with fear. Like just to be smart about what you're what you're doing, and then if you're in a bad situation, you just get out of it. You just go with your gut instinct, and if you're not right. comfortable, you just leave. 
That's yeah. all you have to do. I think everyone needs to learn to listen to their, I call it my spidey sense, right? It's like yeah, it's I, you yeah. even get it in, in the woods when there's no one around and you, you get this weird vibration when there seems to be something threatening around. You know what I mean? Like either a, yeah. a bear yeah. or a cat. You just get yeah. this weird sense and it's just like you feel it in your neck and then it's just like you kind of just go faster. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, like yeah. it's just, oh, I need to get out of here. Or, you know, use your senses. I remember riding trail just just near my house. And I came to this intersection of trail and all I could smell was wet fur. Right. And it was after rain. It totally smelled like a wet dog. And I'm just like, yeah. I'm getting out of here because, yeah. And I, to I told a buddy about that who's a bit more mountain experienced. He was like, yeah, good call. Like if you smell something big and wet, like an animal, yeah. it's like, yeah, you need to yeah. leave there. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, trust your I, instincts, right? Totally. I did actually have a a couple bear encounters on this trip, and I'm yeah, I'm trained in that with working uh, in forestry. But it's the first time I've seen a grizzly bear on foot with two cubs. Actually, that was wow. A bit scary. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I was climbing up, uh, going up a power line trail in the Kananaskis area, and I just luckily I was going super slow, and I crested the top of the hill, and then I just saw the mama and two cubs, and I just you know froze and just thought, okay, okay. Bear aware, what do you do? Don't run, don't yell, like <laughs> get off the bike, walk backwards really slowly, keep walking backwards, turn around, and luckily it was okay, but that was like a whoa, okay. You know, because you always like picture yourself in that situation, but then how you react is another matter. Like some people might just instinctually just run or freak out. Mm -hmm. But luckily I, I kept it together and did the right thing and it was, it was fine. How close? How close were they? Um, I'm gonna guess like 50 meters, like close enough, but not close like, enough. Yeah, close enough. Yeah. yeah, too close for comfort. But I didn't, I didn't scare her or anything. And that's the big thing is not to startle the animal or get between her and her cubs. Yeah. So in that case, likely she won't want to mess with you if you're not perceived as a threat. So, yeah, but still, like that definitely got my adrenaline going. I've had way more bear experiences on the coast actually than than here. Like when I lived in in like Whistler, Pemberton, and Squamish in that area. Yeah. did a lot of biking there and and to see, to see like families of black bears was like oh there's some black bears it's like they're they're friggin everywhere right and yeah. Yeah. i don't know maybe they're just so used to it maybe used to human interaction they i've never really had a bad encounter and and then out here i've seen signs of bear but i think i, I just haven't had that experience yet like it's more like elk and sheep out here you know like yeah i haven't I haven't had a bad grizzly experience yet so i'm not sure uh yeah, I would probably react the same way. Like, oh, sorry. And and speak gently. Like, okay, I'm just gonna just gonna move away now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Hold it there, just chill. Yeah. Life's good. Yeah, because not everyone would do that. I think some people would just kind of freak out and run or do something silly. And you but I, yeah, I've seen like so many bears with my like I see black bears all the time when I'm working and they just you know, they just often do their thing or run away. Yeah. And yeah, it's kind of funny that we say we're used to seeing bears because you tell some people that who aren't from Canada, they think you're insane. Like, what do you mean you saw a bear? <laughs> yeah. You know, pretty, I think, yeah. I think too, that as long as you're not threatening their food supply or they're young, I don't yeah. think they really care. Like, cause they're animals, right? You know, if you an injured animal is a dead animal, like for them to risk their life to go after something, it's really have to, it really has to be worth it. Yeah. So yeah, they're only going to attack you. Yeah. If you're threatening their food source or threatening their young, but it has to be worth it. Like, if you if if you look too scary to attack or too intimidating, they're not going to do it because they get injured, they're dead. Like that's just how it is. Right. Not there as an animal. So in like in in like the what decade decade and a half of you working in the bush, that was like your closest, weirdest encounter, or have you had others? Um, 
Yeah, I've, I've never encountered a grizzly on foot before. It was only always from a vehicle, but that's I've had crazy. a bear, a black bear bluff charge me before. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and by bluff charge, that's basically, it's like an intimidation tactic that they don't go full force at you, but they'll kind of stop within like five feet of you. So they'll run yeah. at you and then yeah. like stop and pat their paws. Kind of like a guy it. would get chesty, like, ooh, do you want to go? Yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. thing. Yeah. yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, but yeah there, were, yeah, there were cubs around, so that was kind of scary, but I basically just got out of there and my work was done for the day. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a valid excuse to go home early. It's like, yeah, got bluff charged by a bear. Okay, yep. <laughs> yeah, the weirdest encounter I've ever had was I was hiking in Pemberton. I think it was Tenkill Lake. I think that's what it's called. And uh, yeah. the trail kind of curves around like, you know, it's thick woods and it kind of curves around. And my uh, buddy and I, we walked around the corner and there was a mother and two cubs. And it was probably like maybe 15 meters away, like pretty close. Pretty and close. and the mother stood up on her hinds and she was just like, <laughs> like a gorilla. Oh and I was just like, holy shit. And I just. You know, yeah. we, we went back around the corner. So we walked back around and then I think our hike's over. Like, I think our hike's going to be over. And the person's like, yeah, well, let's just, good. let's just give it a couple more minutes. Right. And so then we kind of, we poke our heads around the corner and she just got right back up <gasps> and her kids, she oh, got her kids wow. going up a tree. Like, have you seen that before? Like the, the mother yeah. will actually yeah. instinctively just say, Hey, you go up that tree. And then the yeah, cubs will. Yeah. And then, uh, so okay, hikes over, started hiking back the other way. And, and we met two other people. And we're just like, yeah, there's a mother and two cubs and she's, she's not happy. So I think your hike's over. Oh no, we'll see about that. You know, we, <laughs> we, we saw them like 10 minutes later. <laughs> they caught up to us and they're like, yeah. yeah. I think the party's over. Gotta party's go. over. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that was probably the closest kind of weirdest. And you know, they give you a warning, you know? Like, yeah, bears do have a personality. Like they yeah. actually, you know, if they're if they want to attack, like they'll do a bluff charge if they're trying to threaten you. And like, whereas like a predatory bear might kind of act in a way like that it's stalking you, it might kind of follow you around, make a low profile. Yeah, like it should be you weird. You have a personality, so you kind of learn to read it. Yeah, not like a moose that would just stand there and just charge. Like moose kill more people than black bears in Canada by a large amount. Yeah, I have another story actually. Yeah. I was I was in Alaska at a single speed world championships in like 2014, and we were like riding through town, and uh, they have this amazing trail system, like this valley trail system kind of thing that goes around the city and we come around the corner and there's all these tourists and they're all gathered and they're taking pictures. Like what are they taking pictures of? And there was this skyscraper of a moose. It was, I've huh. never seen a moose that big, man. They're huge yeah. up there. Really and, big. and my buddy Jordy and I are like, we are out of here, man, because if they get too close, that thing won't hesitate to like, just oh, yeah. stomp those people. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And people think bears are the only threatening it, but any, any animal, you know can be dangerous like oh running season is way more dangerous than bear and yeah they won't give you a sign they're gonna they're gonna charge we'll just be standing still doing their moose thing and stomping humans is part of the moose thing they're just like that's so, kind of yeah, our thing a truck on the highway. yeah like they're they're way more dangerous than bears we don't talk about like oh big scary moose it's like yeah be afraid of the moose it's like probably three times more likely to kill yeah. you than this <laughs> and elk actually i've had a weird encounter with an elk in banff oh, in, yeah. in a campground yeah i was walking with with my partner we were camping and we we're in a closed part of the campground and this had to be like i don't know a couple hundred feet away this this elk and it just kind of looked over at us and it just like 
started trotting oh, towards yeah. us and it just came yeah. they're massive too right they're massive beasts i didn't oh, know yeah. what to do like how do you do you look at them do you not look at them do you run do you i, I don't know get out of there like climb a tree i, I was just kind of like I'm waving my hands like whoa 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 like what and we were backing up and and you know what I didn't have bear spray or anything. I actually took out my knife, <laughs> my little tiny what? knife. It's like, if you're going to stop me, I'm going to go down with a fight. I'm going to stab and you. Like, in the sh- out or what? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> with my little <laughs> tiny camping knife. <laughs> I didn't know what else to do. I was so scared. But yeah, yeah it's funny. Is- like, yeah. What about cats? Did you have any encounters with cats on the wild rest route or otherwise? Oh, just that, that weird, like, growling oh, yeah. at like noise. But I didn't actually see any. But that's the thing you have to worry about. If you don't see the cat, but you hear mm. it, then... That's when they attack. They attack you from the back where you're not looking. Yeah. So, yeah. I've heard people putting like, they put uh, dots on the back of their hats or their helmets. So it looks like eyes. Because oh. they, they do apparently, they have to always attack from the back and they go for your neck. But That's if, right. if you have like, like, I almost think of those googly eyes from the art store and like just put them <laughs> on the back, on the back <laughs> of your helmet. So they're always shaking around. Maybe a little pipe cleaner for a mouth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I know they actually like in small villages in India, they would have tigers attacking people. Yeah. And they would actually do that. But the tigers figured it out and they just attacked people anyway. Really? So, yeah. That That's was like crazy. Yeah, kind of crazy. But. Yeah, I never thought about going to that extreme. Like, I heard there were pumas and mountain lions around, but I didn't think it would be, like, that big of a threat. But, yeah, hearing hearing that outside of my tent was pretty sketchy. Like, I'm not usually, like, I don't wild camp afraid, but I was sketched out after that. Like, maybe not genuinely afraid for my safety, but it was just really eerie. Yeah. The noise was just, like, how do I imitate it? It was like, wow, wow, like, really. Oh, creepy. I sleep in a tarp, too. I'd be freaking out. Oh, God, (laughs) I'd be freaking out. Yeah, it was pretty. I was pretty pretty sketched out for sure. I have a friend in in. Uh, I kind of met him through Instagram. Um, um, uh, Abby is a short for his name, and he uh, uh, he he always. I'll put a picture up, and he'll be like, "Oh, watch out for bears!" And then we, you know, we chat about kind of fat biking or whatever. And, and I said, "What about you? Do you ever go riding by yourself?" He's like, "You're always by yourself. How do you do it?" And it's like, "I don't know. I just do it." He goes, "What about bears?" Like, oh, bears, whatever. And he says, well, around here, it's like tigers. So like, he, you know, you can't go for a bike ride alone in the jungle because you'll get attacked by a tiger. It's like, is there tiger spray? Like, how do you? <laughs> yeah, that's pretty hardcore. Maybe just carry a cannon. Yeah, it's so crazy. So um, so how did it feel? So you, you, you get through Arizona and then you're like 20, 30 kilometers from the end. How, how are you feeling? Um, I was actually pretty tired at that point. Like I usually with most trips, it's like, it's really hard for me to finish because the whole point of the trip is the journey. It's not getting from A to B. Mm. Like I wouldn't really care about the end. It's more about like the path I took to get there. Mm -hmm. But I was actually really tired because I I pushed myself pretty hard the last five weeks because I only had uh, a certain time frame to, to ride within. So I felt pretty tired and almost ready for the end. But, um, yeah, the actually, the last 500 meters was kind of funny. It was just like, this pretty decent path that which turned into like really overgrown thorn bush. And I could see the wall and I thought, Oh man, this is ridiculous. I'm going to push just to get a, a photo next to a stupid wall. <laughs> it's a good <laughs> photo. Yeah. It's like, you know, got to get that Instagram shot. I finished, but it's like, <sighs> Oh man, can I just take a photo from like 500 meters away, whatever I could see it. So I had to convince myself to like push through all these thorns. Just to get <laughs> <to see it. laughs> but yeah. But at the end I didn't really matter. It was like, yeah, who really cares if I get to the actual wall? But then it's nice to have that photo of like next to the wall to say, yes, I made it. Here's a, here's Mexico on the other side of this fence. So yeah, but like, it was definitely a good feeling. 
especially just, you know, rewinding back in my head and thinking about like how I was injured the previous year and never thought I'd actually be able to do it again. But just to be able to actually like have that sense of completion was really quite awesome. Uh, but I was ready to be done. Like I was, my body was tired. Like you know, saddle sores weren't healing. So oh, I was, no. I, I, I was good to be done when I when I when I was got to the end. Like I was actually ready this time, as opposed to trips in the past where it was a bit of mixed feelings, and I, I almost could keep going. But like this was a good end point for me, and I was ready. Definitely. Awesome. Well, yeah, I'm just looking at your photo now. You look very triumphant. <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean it's funny when like i look at all like obviously all my photos are like self timers when you're yeah. by yourself they're all posed right it's not like of a, course you know <laughs> so it's like all right try to look natural and proud. <laughs> i've got 10 <laughs> seconds to set it up go <laughs> yeah, set it up. look natural oh okay then try five more times to get it right <laughs> yeah, yeah it was like the best natural triumphant pose shot i could do yeah <laughs> well that's good you gotta you know you have to capture these moments right because you're by yourself no one else is going to capture them so you know, no. it's important. And then when, you know, later in life, you can look back and look at that picture and, and feel it again. You know, you'll be able to feel that, you know, all, yeah. this, all the scratches on your arms from walking through the thorn yeah. bush. I can feel the thorns <laughs> in my knees and the reluctance to like backtrack through the bush again to get back. <laughs> right. So, uh, yeah, I was going to ask. So, you know, the logistics, how, how did you, uh, what happened after the ride was over? Where do you have to go to get yourself out of there? So it's a, it's a four mile out and back, like huh. one way to get to the water and go back. So yeah, it's like along that path through the thorn bush and then back. And then um, there's a, an alternative route back to a town called Sierra Vista that was 40 kilometers. So um, luckily I knew someone in Phoenix who was willing to pick me up in Sierra Vista, oh, which nice. is three hours away. So I, uh, yeah, I back, I rode up to Sierra Vista, um, stayed with a warm showers host. Then I had a friend the next day pick me up from Phoenix, which is a three hour drive and take me back. And then I was able to walk up my bike there and fly out of Phoenix. So really quite easy logistically. Otherwise it would be like a Greyhound or something, which is a bit more of a pain in the ass when you have a bike. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, Traveling with a bike is always super annoying and it's expensive. So I was lucky to have a nice friend to pick me up, which made it a way easier for sure. And you had to get back like after the, the 10 weeks you had to get back home to begin life again or could you have gone on another tour um well i have a i have a boyfriend back home and we ah, were, whatever yeah 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 we had a trip <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah i was like oh yeah really i'm kidding <laughs> um we have a trip planned to uh go hiking in patagonia oh, which right. we're leaving for in a week so awesome. um i'm not back to work until march like my forestry season my self-made season is like march to like july or august which is kind of weird but um, yeah, so I'm not back at work till March. Hopefully, I always go back hoping there's work. I don't. I don't always have the 100% security, but luckily I'm an okay worker, and they might pick me up again. So March would be the time that I'll be back to work. Yeah. Are you planting trees? Or um, no. Foreman or no? I stopped doing that a while ago. Like I did that for seven seasons, and oh, now okay. I do pre-harvest forestry, and oh. that goes year round. So. Um, I got in on with this really small company where it's just one guy that hires like six experienced people. So I'm kind of like my own company, but I, I'm, a, I'm a junior forestry tech that helps someone else out. Okay. And my boss is really understanding of my lifestyle. He's okay with me coming and going. So it's a pretty good setup that I can just kind of show up, <laughs> work for six months and then go again. Yeah. So that's the deal that I have now. Um, yeah, I'd only plant trees again if I absolutely have to. It's quite hard on your body. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm pretty done with it. Like it was really exciting when I was a bit younger, but yeah, it's it's pretty damaging, and I, I don't think I'd want to do it again. 
the last time I did it was uh, I did it, I planted in the Australian summer in Queensland. That was pretty brutal. And I think that'll be the last time I do it. <laughs> wow. Um, so what's next? So try, are you going to go uh, hiking in, in Patagonia? Yep. With your man. And then yep. uh, do you have any other bike trips planned? Um, so I haven't cycled anywhere in Africa. That's oh. the one continent besides Antarctica I haven't been to. So I'm really drawn to Namibia. I think that would be my next trip. So that's probably number one on the list because I really like deserts and Namibia is full of desert and it's also it has one of the lowest population densities in the world and I like really remote countries where I can just wild camp and be out in nature. So I think I'd like to do probably Namibia next summer because it's their winter at the time. And then other trips would be I really want to do the Peru Divide. Uh-huh. That's really high on my list. I really want to cycle around the uh, Chilean and Argentinian Puna, like the high altitude desert. That would be like also in the top three. And then, yeah, so I'll start with Namibia, hopefully. And then, yeah, like there's always trips in my head, but that would be number one. Like, I, I feel like I need to get to Africa because I haven't been there yet. Mm-hmm. So that, yeah, that's hopefully going to happen next year. That would be like a shorter trip, probably six weeks or two months. Yeah. And wait, you went to Antarctica? No. <laughs> oh, I thought you said you had. I was like, no. what? What no, did you no, do? No, yeah, that's, <laughs> I have to set for Antarctica and Africa. That would be a bit more costly of a trip, and it would be yeah. fat bike only, I would think. I was going to say, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That would be yeah. an amazing trip on a fat oh, bike. would be crazy, actually. It'd be insane. Yeah, I don't know how you would arrange that logistically. Just being able to get a land permit, I think, is quite difficult. So, oh, is it? Yeah, I don't think it'd come that easily, but it's if you have a lot of money, I'm sure you could do anything. <laughs> so, yeah, well, that's it, hey. And you'd probably end up just pushing your bike across the the continent anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds just, pretty like, gnarly and windy. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, so yeah. I don't know if that'll happen anytime soon. <laughs> but some people, it's been done. I'm sure everything's well, been done. That's cool. So you've been to a lot of places, and then so with all your experience bike touring, uh, what can you say to people about who, who are thinking about? Oh, I want a bike pack, but I'm not sure they're him and Han about it. What would you say to those people about with all your experiences? Obviously I would say just do it. But like the most important thing is I think people get too caught up in like the gear and the logistics. Just, I'd say just go with what you've got. Like if you have like a crappy single speed bike, you don't, you know, you can't afford like fancy new bags. Just go with what you've got and yeah. get out there. That's the toughest part is just basically putting yourself out there and getting to the start like once you're out there you'd be surprised how easy it is and like yeah it, it's really different based on like how you're living your life and what your priorities are you know obviously if you you're it's all around a certain vacation time or if you have kids you you know the logistics would be very different than someone like me who just takes like a big chunk of time off but even if you only have two weeks you know why not just do a trip in your you know close to where you live like you don't have to fly across the planet to find to discover something amazing it could be in your own backyard so i'd be an advocate for the lifestyle so not not necessarily that you have to like you know get on a plane and fly to asia why not just go for a trip in the province or your own state if you don't want to go very far so just get on the bike regardless of what kind of equipment you have and then just ignore the news ignore what your parents say <laughs> like it's not bad or as dangerous as people say it is people are really friendly and they're often like intrigued by what you're doing yeah, and and you know, like we talked about earlier, everybody's afraid, right? Like, yeah, yeah. you know, you have to face up to your fears. Hang on one second. This is Sloan. Come here, Sloan. She's, What's her name? She, uh, Sloan. Cool name, Sloan. Yeah, she said you have a cool name, Sloan. She's, yeah, that's she's, a, playing my, she's, playing really my, she's playing my drums. She's playing my drums. If you named after the Canadian band, 
Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying to encourage them. I've got like guitars and drums. I got everything in here. So yeah. try to raise a family band. Yeah. But you know, the band song has nothing to do with that. Yeah, I can't do that. Yeah. What's going on yeah. up there, honey? What's going on upstairs? Are you guys picking shows to watch? You're not? Can you give me like 20 more minutes? Can you do that? You want to be up? Then we got to get ready for our day. We've, yeah. got, we've got a date today. With bike? With biking? Well, honey, it's snowing out. Oh. But you know what? We could maybe putz around the driveway. No, ride go, your bike. no go to Nikki's. Oh, I don't know if we're going to go to Nikki's. I don't know what she's up to. But let me just finish this conversation, okay? Do you want to say hi to Tara? Hi, Tara. Hey, Sloan. How are you? How are you doing? Good. Yeah. Here, here. Hey, Sloan. How's your day going? Good. Yeah? Is there a lot of snow outside? Do you like, do you like riding bikes? Uh-huh. Yeah. I like riding bikes, too. <laughs> okay. You you take off, honey. I'll be up in 20, okay? Yeah. All right. Bye. 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 <laughs> cutie. Bye. It's 20 minutes, okay? It's the hardest part is trying to find time. Like when people ask you, how do you find the time? I could never find the time. You yeah, know, like, like right now. Yeah, like they're so they're so young and there there's so much work right now and and uh not I don't I think a podcast has gone by where I don't have to edit out one of my kids coming. <laughs> Sometimes I leave it in. Like, I'll probably leave that in. That's fine. It just adds to the charm, though. Yeah. You know, it's just supposed to be a convo. And, uh, totally. Yeah, yeah. I like it. Yeah. I just, I'd like to see more women get out there and go bikepacking. Um, like, like I said, it's the world's not as scary as most people perceive. Like, a lot of people want to help you and they're just, they're fascinated by what you're doing and just go with what you've got. Don't worry about having the nicest gear. Don't get, stuck into that trap because we're all you know you don't have to have the best bike the best bags just get out there like really it's all about just the love of cycling yeah. and all you got to do is get on the bike and start pedaling and you'd be amazed how far you get get one day okay get up and go another day then soon you could you know cover a country cover a continent or just do a trip in your own backyard yeah. go up for a week and just get out there and yeah just, just start. and start small and and like um i did a little ride with a couple of guys uh, a few weeks ago and i didn't have time to get out and it's like well we'll go to lake enid it's like literally under an hour to get there right yeah. so we, we just packed up super super light lightweight pack setups and just kind of went up and spent the night in the woods and then the next day they carried on and ended up in the snow but yeah. it's like yeah you can you can fit it in and you know you can you can get out and i think just being being in nature or in the woods even just for a night is so rejuvenating and so yep. refueling that that more people forest bathing right that whole japanese can't remember what the japanese word is for it but getting out just getting out in nature and and enjoying yeah. it yeah so yeah because I spent, I spent a lot of my life outdoors i mean like i'm when i'm at work i'm outside and then in my recreational time i'm outside and it's just it's a very important part of who i am it's something i need to keep doing for my mental and my physical health yeah. So I, I would encourage people to do the same, like just step away from your busy life, even if it's for a weekend or like a couple hours and just get out there. And that's all you have to do, no matter like how crappy your bike is, just yeah. like, you know, start pedaling. Like I've met people riding around the world on like, you know, $20 single speeds they got in China, but they were happy as could be. And their bike was falling apart, you know, twice a week. They, they didn't care. They just kept going. Right. And it's probably the most reliable machine ever created, really. 
I mean, yeah. things can go wrong and they can squeak and they can creak, but yeah, you can push them pretty hard, you know, and oh, you're right. Sure. You, you don't need a, a $10,000 bike to bike pack. You know? I mean, like for me, like I'm not super mechanically inclined. And to be honest, that was, that was the scariest part for me of setting out is, Oh my God, what am I, I going to do if my wheel falls apart and I can't fix it. So that was my biggest fear. And it's funny. It still is, but I figured it out. I watch YouTube videos. Yeah. I have app on my phone called bike repair where literally you know it'll diagnose the problem for you You just say okay i have a problem with my derailleur you know it's like gears are skipping okay do this and it's a step-by-step thing so for people that are nervous about that like i'm not mechanically inclined at all and i figured it out like i you know there's certain things you should know how to do like obviously change a flat fix a chain adjust your brakes but like you know i didn't know how to chew a wheel so when i had a wobbly wheel i just took out my trusty phone and a trusty app and it told me how to do it with photos step by step so like how can you really screw it up if you follow the directions right that's crazy we have all this information at our fingertips now oh it's, yeah it's crazy i would say yeah. too you know like next time people are listening <clears throat> you go to your bike shop and you buy a bike ask the shop to not assemble it take yeah. it take it home in the box you don't necessarily need a stand it, it makes it a lot easier obviously if you have a stand but just that can really help you you know, put the wheels on, yeah. you know, they don't need a lot of work to build. But, and then the other thing people have asked me like, Oh, what's a good way to learn maintenance? It's like, well, do you ride in the winter? Like, no. Okay. Well take your bike apart, put it on the floor in the garage, take every component off of it, every single component, and then go, go buy the tools that you need to do the job. You don't really need a lot of tools really no. to do it. And uh, take your bike to pieces, take everything out, bottom bracket, take it all apart and then put it back together again right yeah exactly and then youtube right you can find all this information so oh, it's incredible. Yeah. It's on YouTube. yeah there's no reason to be afraid of of the machine it, they're pretty basic they're pretty basic machines yeah like at first like for me you had no clue like it was intimidating like, like you know i could change a flat for a long time but anything beyond that was just totally new to me and kind of scary and like yeah some people that can look at a machine and disassemble it and figure it out but for me like i need the pictures yeah. <laughs> i need very specific directions like i'm just not mechanically inclined that's not how my brain works but it's fine i get by like i've gotten through sticky situations yeah um i cracked a rim a couple times and you can't really do much about that but no. <laughs> yeah um in those situations i was luckily like close to a town once was in china once was in india and i was out with a hitchhike and like had a, you know some friendly police officers drive me in and like got a new wheel like it was fine <laughs> but you know but all other minor things you usually can fix yourself with an app or with yeah, just basic knowledge. Yeah. So it's don't the, be intimidated by it. It's uh, that's the message I'd give out. Just there's lots of tools that you can use to help you. I do have one of the short story I could tell you actually about a mechanical problem where I had a, um, a, a the kindness of strangers thing. So um, yeah, actually I broke my chain and I was at a campground and then you know I thought okay take out my trusty chain tool no problem only to notice that the chain tool was broken which was really my fault. Oh, wow, that play. little pin fallout. Yeah, no, the little like prongs or like the little things you you sit the chain in. Yeah, yeah, they were bent, and I thought, where I bend this? So I just couldn't fix it. So this nice couple at a campground drove me into town, and this was like Eureka, Montana, no bike shop, super small town. And so I went to the home hardware, hoping for the best, that maybe I could fix my tool here or something. So I, I go up to the the cashier and I says, "Is there anything I can get here that would help fix this tool?" And he said, "No, sorry, we don't have anything like that." And a man standing behind me said, oh, just go to the high school and ask for Jim Meepham. He likes wipes. He should be able to help you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So right. 
I went to the high school, and when I got to the high school, Jim was already waiting for me, oh, and he nice. knew that I was coming, which was awesome. He was the superintendent at the school, and he said, yeah, no problem. We'll get you back on the road. Um, so he went home to see if he could find his chain tool, but he couldn't, but he happened to be going towards Whitefish that day, so he drove me to Whitefish, took me to a bike shop. I got my bike fixed, got a chain tool, and drove me back, and then invited me to stay in his home that night with his wife. So just cool stuff like that. You know, you think, oh, no, I'm in trouble. How could I be so stupid? And then all of a sudden, like, I don't know where this wonderful person comes to help you out. That's and, awesome. Yeah, he was, he was, his story was really inspiring too. He was actually like, um, at one point of his life, he was really overweight and in really bad health and then completely turned it around. And he's now an Ironman. Like, oh, wow. And wow. he's, yeah, he's in his late fifties. So I was super inspired by him. So it was really cool to have met someone like that. Yeah. And yeah, like, yeah, Jim and Jim was definitely like a trail angel. Awesome. Yeah, Jim and his wife, Susan, they were awesome people. That's another little anecdote, too. It's just like it's never too late to flip things around. You know, you can no. always get your, 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 yourself in shape or to change your life and make things better. Like, Yeah, yeah. Like just listening to your last podcast uh, with uh, Liz and Bob, was it? Yeah. Like um, just hearing their story, how they did the Great Divide, because I've met a few people in their late 60s, like one guy in India in the Himalayas I met. Uh, the, well, the first guy to do the Wild West route um, northbound, his name was Yeert, and he was uh, Dutch, like also in his 60s. Yeah. And I'm always so inspired by these people. But it comes to no surprise to me because these guys have been active their whole lives. And like, you know, why can't, like there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to keep going as long as your health is okay. Yeah. And do these things when you're in your 60s. And like in my mind, like when people always tell me like, oh, just do it while you're young. I often say, well, I beg to differ. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I just met a guy who was, my, who was double my age and doing the exact same thing I was doing. It's like, why is it limited to young people? Like, you know, why would you, if you keep it up and you keep moving, then why should you be limited? Like, you, you could keep going into your 60s, 70s, 80s even, like if everything aligns well for you. Moving water don't freeze. Yeah, that's a great expression. <laughs> yeah, you don't use it, you lose it, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah, so I'm really supportive of that. And I love meeting people that are, you know, yeah, twice my age and doing exactly what I'm doing. So yeah. I don't think you can do it at any age. Well, you're I inspiring think. as well, Tara, I think. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, I think uh, I think a lot of people fall in the trap of, uh, like, this is maybe a bit more um, just life's weird, right? And you end up falling in these traps, these career traps. And, you know, you can't get out of your, you end up doing things you don't want to do just to make to make ends meet and, and, um, our mental health suffers, right. For that. Absolutely. And so to be able to shape your life around the things you love, I think is, uh, it's so important to do that. And, um, yeah, thanks for saying that, you know, you, you're not, you're yeah. not the only person to, to kind of reflect on that and, and share that with people. And I think it's important. It's like, you don't need a lot to have a happy life. No, like I've never had a lot of money. And for me, like a, a really successful career wasn't, the forefront of who I wanted to be like I did go to university and I thought for a moment that's what it would be but now I realize like my job just creates a means for me to do what I'm most passionate about doing which is cycling and for now it works well and I don't know why I wouldn't continue to live that way you know and for others they get more immersed in their jobs and they spend more time like investing in a career and like moving up but there's no right or wrong way to live it's whatever you know you you feel like you want to do but I just don't believe that your passion has to be your job. It would be great. I'd love to get paid to cycle tour, but <laughs> wouldn't we all? But you know, if, if that's not possible, then I can like I could do work so that I can fulfill this passion. So I think it's 
I'm trying to create that balance of a life at home and a life on the road. Um, at one point, I thought I would have a permanent life on the road. I thought it would be my sole lifestyle. Then I realized I actually burnt out and I got sick of traveling and I got mm. sick of cycling. So that was during my two-year trip. So now I realize that I need both in my life. I like I like the planning stage. I like being at home. I like the groundedness, but I also need that unfamiliar lifestyle. I need to be in a different place, different surroundings, and kind of, yeah, be in a totally different environment and just, like, experience something totally different, just, like, going through Utah. Like, because I think that that keeps me alive mentally. It awakens my senses. It makes me yearn for more adventure. So, like, I feel like it's an important part of my life, and I, I want to keep doing it as long as I can. I think that was awesome. I think we should end it right there. That was okay. amazing. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Cool. How do you feel? Feel good? Yeah. yeah. I, lo- I love, like, talking talking to like-minded people because I don't have a lot of friends at home that are in this cycle touring, so I'm really happy to be a part of the community and to share my experiences with, with someone like yourself who's also really passionate about it. And I'm really glad that you're able to connect with people in the community and bring their voices out. It's really cool. Ah, thanks, Tara. I really respect it. That means a lot. Thanks so much. And uh, we're glad to have you as a part of our community as well. (laughs) You know, it's people like you. I think that's helping that uh, helping grow the grow the activity and and showing people that you know anyone if you can ride a bike, you can bike pack. And uh, yeah, so thanks for being an inspiration. No problem. And uh, make sure you stay in touch. So if you do end up going to Africa, which you probably will, because you're, I think you're fairly focused on things like that. (laughs) I want to hear about it. We want to hear about it. So please make sure you reach back out when you come back and, and uh, don't be a stranger. Okay. All right. Okay. Okay. Thanks for your time today. Okay. Thanks Steve. Have a great day. Okay. Talk later. Bye. I want to thank Tara again for her time and for the conversation. It's fantastic. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And I want to thank you guys for tuning in. I hope you're enjoying the podcast and the content. And if you have any suggestions for guests or you have some voice intros or you just want to reach out and say hi, you can do that. You can send me an email at bikepackcanadapodcast at gmail.com. And uh, if you have a voice intro or something, I'll get it on the show. Looking forward to hearing from you. Just a reminder, uh, head on over to Apple iTunes to support us and give us a five-star rating and a review would be fantastic. Um, so do that. And when we hit 100 ratings, I am going to get a rendition of the Bike Pack Canada logo tattooed on my left calf, mostly just because I want to get a tattoo, but I want to keep Bike Pack Canada going and growing. So again, thanks everyone. And until next time, get out there, ride bikes, sleep in the woods and keep the rubber side down.
but it's just a window sticky. But when it's the end of Christmas, you have to take it down.